And when you think about product market fit and virality, Loom was like a very special and unique place in my my career. I joined in January of uh, 2020. And April of that year is when we entered the pandemic. And all of a sudden, like asynchronous video messaging, it took on a different level of importance. And signups went from roughly like 2,000 new signups per day to 30, 40, 50, or 60,000 new signups per day for a prolonged period, for a period of months. And so um, it was like just warp speed. The lines between sales-led and product-led are blurring. What used to be two distinct sales motions are now complementary to each other. Today, we're talking to Pete Prowett, who's worked for some of the most successful companies in sales-led and product-led growth. Welcome to another episode of Grow and Tell, the show where we tell the growth stories of revenue leaders behind successful companies. I'm your host, Alex Krakow. Pete Prowett started his career working with a more traditional sales model at Box. Then he was an early sales hire at Quip, which helped pioneer the PLG model. He then joined Intercom as one of the first five sales reps, helping grow Intercom from $1 million in revenue to $140 million in revenue over five years. Next, Pete joined as the first sales leader at Loom, leading sales from $1 million to $7 million ARR. And after Loom, he helped lead the revenue team at Rewatch and today runs the revenue team at Stitch. Today, I'll be talking to Pete about the nuances of sales-led and product-led growth, what it was like to be at Intercom and Loom during hypergrowth, and how he made the shift from successful sales rep to revenue leader. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. So you started your your sales career working at Box, which is more of a traditional sales-led model. And then from there, you went on to work at Quip, Intercom, Loom, all product-led models. I'm curious like, what you think about is the biggest difference between more of a sales-led versus a product-led model. Yeah, I think um, it really harkens back to sort of the central idea um, that I've stolen from people who are much smarter than myself, but it's just really right tool for right job. In 2010, after predictable revenue came out and Salesforce kind of became the bee's knees in terms of how to change the game in terms of like SaaS and, and building SaaS sales teams and building repeatability at scale, Sales-led like, had to be kind of the tool to get you from A to B for much of the more transactional, more volume-based, more SMB-based business, because frankly, it was the right tool for the right job. As technology matures, as teams grow, and as sort of like the macroeconomic starts to, uh, to do things like to reward efficiency and, and efficient growth, things like product-led are pulled forward. And it's been really exciting over the past three and a half, four years to see product-led take a bigger piece of the pie to figure out, hey, this is going to get you not only to, you know, five mil, 10 mil, 50 mil in ARR, but potentially product-led could be like the biggest catalyst for getting you to 30, 50, or in some cases much further than that in ARR. And in that, like in the actual sales motion itself, what makes sales-led really different than product-led. I know in product-led, they're obviously just getting dropped into the product itself and starting to play around with it. But like, how does sort of the mentality of a sales rep change in, in, in those sort of two different worlds? I think this is a fun one because it's easy to fall into the trap of binary thinking here, of just like sales-led and product-led as being kind of like one or the other, either or. Where in reality, a lot of times it's complementary. How far can we get with product-led? How can we leverage product as a, a differentiator to help build a coherent and cohesive buying experience. So just designing for buying. Um, What is the role of product in that? And then at what point is a human the best tool to sort of 
connect different stakeholders, become multi-threaded deals, and to take complex and nuanced processes, the human processes, and to make sure that those are moving in a direction that's going to ultimately increase your chances for closing that deal, closing that revenue. And so I think that whenever faced with the decision of, is it better for this to be product-led or is this better for this to be like sales-led, I always try and like go back into that designing for buying mindset and figure out if I were buying the software, what would the experience be that I wanted? Is this the right point for a sales rep for Pete to to jump in and, and intervene? Or is this something where I actually want to do a little bit of exploration to get smart and to figure out how far I can kind of take this uh, on my own. And I imagine like more complex products that are harder to set up or have to be more sales led where maybe more SMB can, can be a little bit more product led. Is that the right way to think about it? I think there, there's a product complexity layer to it. I think the other thing to think about too is if you're building a product in a new space or you're taking a markedly different approach to an old problem, a lot of times buyers don't know what they don't know. You know, if you divide the world in kind of that Johari window of known, 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 unknown, unknown, known, and unknown, unknown, if you're building in a new space, um, I think about a lot of the AI companies that have come out over the past year, if you're building in a really new, really dynamic and really unknown space, that might actually be a good time for you to intervene earlier in the process to sort of help open up a prospect's eyes in terms of what's possible and to do a little bit of the, the challenger sale on, on traditional thinking earlier. I'd love to talk a little bit about your time at Intercom. You know, I assume when you joined, you you had some level of product market fit and it was kind of time to scale the the business side of things. Can you paint a picture of like what Intercom was like w- when you started? Yeah. So when I joined Intercom, it was under 2 million revenue with a, an early sales team, very inbound, very product-led motion. And it was just like people loved the product. It was such a fun time to join on the go-to-market side uh, because it was a product that from an NPS perspective, from a growth perspective, and just from kind of a general virality perspective, was an incredibly like buzzy, beloved brand. I thought that Intercom was a, a really interesting example where we kind of took an opinionated stance on a, a space that was well-worn, you know, like uh, chat wasn't a net new product, net new space, but this idea of like, personalized communications and customer communications at scale, how to figure out how to be like more targeted to provide like a a more kind of bespoke experience and doing so in a way where we, for the first five, six years, rejected the idea of like tickets because we just didn't think that that aligned to like how humans like to be dealt with. That was really fun because it was opinionated. There were some companies who would opt out early, but for the companies who kind of got it, it was really fun to be kind of like a part of pushing thinking forward and being you know, without being too buzzy on it, like a thought leader in the space. So I thought that that was a really interesting lesson in, in, in learning where to be opinionated in sort of product and, and product roadmap decisions and uh, where that takes you. Then ultimately, kind of like where the limitations around that, you know, we revisit a lot of those strongly held opinions earlier on and uh, at different points, like change kind of the roadmap. Very cool. And I feel like, I mean, the chat bubble now is super iconic, right? You go to every website and there's there's a chat bubble. You go into every product and there's a chat bubble. But it seems like there was this big education component in Intercom. Like, yes, it was viral and people really liked it, but like you still had to teach people sort of this new way of working with customers. And yeah, I don't know. How did you think about building that category and, and teaching people that, that you were working with? Yeah, I think early on when you're, you're in a new space like that or you're, you're taking a new approach in a well-worn space, you're faced with the challenge of building an ROI story without having 
completely direct ROI inputs. And so you have to use kind of an example of social proof. You have to use kind of a logical thinking proof, but you also have to kind of tap into this idea of how can I kind of like build the emotional story and resonate with someone on a human level of if you were on the site and you got the chat bubble that popped up and it said, ask us anything. That's one level of an experience. If you're on a site where it's a pricing page, you're specifically looking at you know, B2B versus B2C pricing and your product in the entertainment space. If you got a chat bubble that said, hey, it looks like you're looking for a B2C pricing and you might be in the entertainment space. Here are two examples of companies who have used this in the past. How can we help you? And I think like that is kind of maybe bordering on like creepy in terms of like what you pull in, but it's also just like relevant. Like you want to serve somebody up with something relevant and useful. The worst thing you can do, and you as somebody who's worked in in go-to-market teams and, and in different startups, the worst thing you can do is not add value. And so I think like adding that layer of relevance helped us get closer to adding value faster. And that was always something that I felt good about. Yeah. And I imagine this is where product led is super powerful too, because they can actually see it and play around with it and see how it, it impacts them. Yeah. Very, very cool. And so during your time at Intercom, you also transitioned from like an IC, just a rep selling deals to a manager. And I'm curious what that transition was like at, at a personal level. Like how did you get yourself ready to, to be a sales manager? Yeah, it's funny. I think I'd been successful at some different stops in my career and I'd felt like I'd gotten good enough at sales to, to make a career out of it. Um, I also really enjoy sales. Like sales is something that's so challenging and, and you learn a lot. I, I had this opportunity to, uh, to, to manage a team and, and to manage a new team that was frankly kind of an experiment. It was like, we're going to give you this team to manage. We'll give you six months and see if we can prove out some impact. Um, so it was kind of a trial by fire type, uh, type thing. And what I was really excited to learn was one, I liked it. And two, I think it's something that I've gotten better at over time. I think the challenges of, of going and, and being successful as an individual contributor and then moving into management or you kind of like early on, I fell into the trap of, of trying to be like the super rep and having like the answer to everything where in reality, just because you have a manager title or a leadership title, it doesn't mean that you know everything. So knowing when to sort of like phone a friend, knowing when to go into collaborative and knowing when to the hardest thing I think for new managers and was certainly the case for me was when to allow somebody to learn through failure. I think that the, the guidance that one of my mentors told me early on was when something's too big, to let somebody fail. That's when you have to intervene. And when you can actually like let somebody learn through failure, it can be super, super powerful. Yeah. I definitely experienced that same problem when I was at Lattice, right? You just see someone messing up and you know how to fix it, but you kind of just need to let it happen. And you're just like, ah, I want to fix it, but it's, it's so hard. Yeah. I want to switch gears a little bit and kind of go to your next career stop, which was Loom. And so from my understanding, a big part of your time at Loom was sort of helping the company move up market. And you were kind of tasked with taking like this tremendous user growth and a very viral product and sort of turning that into to revenue growth. And I'm curious, just, you know, at, at, like, what was that experience like? Loom was an incredible experience. I was so lucky to be part of it in those early days. And when you think about product market fit and virality, Loom was like a very special and unique place in my, my career. And there were a number of different factors. One is it became an incredibly popular uh, uh, video messaging tool on its own, but also like I joined in January of 2020. And then okay. uh, April of that year is when we entered the pandemic and all of a sudden like asynchronous video messaging 
it took on a different level of importance. And signups went from roughly like 2,000 new signups per day to 30, 40, 50, or 60,000 new signups per day for a prolonged period, for a period of months. And so it was like just warp speed. You know, I think some of the early hypotheses we had for for building the business, building the up market motion, dipping our toes in, it got pulled forward. And, and, and those are the types of things where it really helped me understand not only kind of like how to be a good sales leader and try to execute in front of, I guess, the pipeline in front of you, how to get better learning through deals and testing different plays, uh, but also just the cross-functional element. At a product-led growth company like that, you need to be so deeply entrenched with your partners in product and operations, engineering. And it means that like you're really taking a one team, one dream approach. Um, and so like having alignment is important at any type of company, but man, like building that muscle early at a product-led company has to be a, a central focus of uh, any revenue leader um, at those companies. And I'm curious, like, yeah, what was your relationship like with that product and engineering org? Was it basically just, because I, I assume you were selling, trying to sell to bigger companies and they probably had a lot of team level features that they needed. Was it basically just communicating what those big companies needed back to the product team? Like, did you have weekly meetings with them? How did that all kind of work? We had a, a cadence of a weekly staff meeting that would be different cross-functional leaders. And I think like when I look back on my time there and like a lot of the learnings I took away was I think early on in companies and early on as a leader, you're a little bit more into like, I want to prove myself mode, right? And so I think like some of the failure modes that you fall into or, or maybe not exploring like, hey, is this friction that we're seeing across a subset of deals? Is this something that we want to hold up? And and and, and, and you're kind of focused on showing like, here's something really cool that we did. You know, here's the deal that we had to sort of uh, do a Hail Mary on and, and really pull it in. And here's a Herculean effort. And I think that what I learned during that time was the importance of building great rapport with the leadership team and like really and more deeply understanding challenges that are happening across the company and figuring out how to like work on those um, holistically. Um, and, and this is a challenge at every leadership team at every company I've worked with is, is how do you build that empathy and that understanding? So you're really like working on the most important problems for you to solve. I don't know if it's fair to say that like, you know, like kind of the, typical like enterprise sales side companies versus at product led companies, it's a bigger challenge in one place or another. Um, but I know that for every company that I work at uh, after this, really trying to understand product roadmap, trying to understand sort of like how engineering tiling works, trying to understand like how we make decisions and, and be a meaningful part of like how we make decisions against roadmap. I think that's just part of like kind of the evolution of sales leader to revenue leader or go-to-market leader. Yeah. I love one thing you said in there, which was like telling real customer stories back to the product team. I know like when I was at Lattice, we would do, you know, all hands where we'd have a real customer, interview a real customer or tell a customer story. And because I feel like the product team can be so caught up in the actual features and the things that are in the app, as opposed to like the outcomes, right? That you're driving within these organizations. And so, yeah, those real customer stories can be really helpful in, in sort of upgrading how the product team thinks about, about different things. And, and some of that is by design. As a product leader, you need to care about truly minute details and understand not only like what friction customers are feeling today, but like what are things that, that we should potentially challenge their thinking on and, and, and really kind of the, that deep technical detail. I think the other failure mode that uh, I've seen is at companies that are like incredibly sales led, sometimes you can get in the trap of just like, I need this feature to close this deal. 
And maybe it's not a like a broadly shared need. Maybe it's something where another feature would be better served for the business you're building long term. Trying to avoid just falling into the trap of deal-based anecdote and also just like surface level feature requests to understanding kind of the deeper pain. Um, I think that's one thing that, you know, like the modern revenue leader or CCO, CRO type needs to be uh, cognizant of. Secondarily, like you also will never be better served as a, a revenue or product leader than getting that direct feedback and experience from your prospects and from your buyers. Um, I think that as a sales team, there's so many things you can do in terms of revenue rollups, in terms of problems to be solved, in terms of how you collect and categorize your product and feature requests. But man, it's never going to be as powerful as, as being on a call or being in the room with the customer and hearing directly from them the things they like, the friction they felt, and what they'd like to see in the future. So you've specialized in product-led sales throughout most of your career. And we've talked a little bit about kind of the nitty-gritty of product-led growth, but I'd love to just like spend the next section really getting into to all the little details. And so product-led growth really starts with, with the end user. And so I'm curious, like, how do you take that initial sign-up, that initial person who just, you know, goes into your app and sort of upgrade that into a team-wide or company-wide deployment? Like, what are those steps to, to kind of to make that happen? The first thing, and, and this is like a little bit more generalized of a playbook, is you want to look at your prospects and sort of lead sources for inbound leads, for outbound leads, and, and to try to parcel them into different groups likely be some group that's a little bit more transactional with a lower propensity to pay and potentially with a higher propensity to self-serve. So like figuring out the characteristics and the shared characteristics of those customers and then building like a true self-serve experience for them, uh, I think is, is super important. And then figuring out like at what level you want to cap that off and then to, to pull in your sales led is so important. And this was in a previous role, I was able to uh, to get to know Yamadi Rangan, the CEO of HubSpot, a little bit. One of her secret sauce truisms was you find the areas where humans are, are best served to do a job, and then you automate everything else. And I think like one of the aha moments for me, which was pretty obvious, is that line is going to change over time. So if you're at Series A, you're building your very first self-serve experience, it's probably going to be a more lightweight and less robust service that doesn't work for as many customers as you want uh, than when it'll be you know, a more mature uh, company with more robust offering uh, at a later point. And so just, just thinking about that as kind of a sliding scale of like, if today you can self-serve customers up to 50 full-time employees and then from 50 to 100 or 50 to 300, you want to introduce like a sales assist team or a different type of uh, sales-led motion. That's great if that's the right play at that time. And part of your goal is to figure out quarter over quarter, how do we bump that up to 75, 150, 300 to allow self-serve to take on a bigger part of your new paid logos and, and your revenue over time. Gotcha. And then once you get to a decision maker or buying committee, like how do you think about building the case Right. And, and then what makes someone sort of upgrade and, and get that enterprise license? Yeah, I always like the concept of like graduation. Like there's some moment in time where maybe it's a collaborative tools that I've used in the past. Like there's a tipping point of if you have five people working in a shared space over the course of a week, maybe that's a good signal for you to say, it looks like your organization is getting outsized value from this. Like, let's talk. And so bubbling those signals up to your sales team 
and then figuring out how to work amongst the sales team, whether it's going to be AE led or a combination of AE and BDR, that becomes like the genesis of like a sales play. And for those companies where it's, it's building kind of consensus and then figuring out what those watershed moments are. I think that's where there's a whole number of tools out there and signals, but just thinking about like how to get that signal out to the right team. And then from that signal, starting to develop repeatable plays around how to take pockets of usage and to turn that into more organization-wide deployments. That's kind of the name of the game. Gotcha. And then are you making like custom decks and presentations that say like, here's your usage in Loom and Intercom, and then giving that to your champion to go present to the CFO? Like, yeah, how does that work? Because I I assume there's just so much good usage data that you can use to go convince and say, hey, go buy the SSO thing or, you know, like you need to upgrade. Yeah, I think that the, and I know that there's the SSO wall of shame and different things. Sometimes like SSO used to be kind of an Occam's razor to an enterprise upgrade. And, and, and I feel like today's buyers expect more. There has to be an additional level of service, of SLA, of functionality, of something that they deem to be valuable to really like spur that organization wide deployment. And so it's hard to sort of generalize across different tools, industries, things like that. The one thing that I would say is for anybody who's looking to do some version of this play where it's to take pockets of usage uh, and then to turn that into organization-wide or uh, company-wide deployments, it's really important to talk to your initial set of users and understand what are the problems that they want to solve, what sort of impact do they see, what do they wish they could see, and bake that in to something that would be a more org-level priority. So if you have a group of uh, product managers who are using like a video messaging tool as a means to share rich context and feedback across time zones, that could be something that is is mapped to a new product release that has outsized organizational impact. Um, And from there can like really tie into something where your VP of product who has access to budget, who has this company level priority would be more interested to invest in a a broader deployment versus just saying, you have five users, here's an SSO uh, upgrade. Let's get, you know, an additional 400. I remember there's a very funny website of like the SSO wall of shame that my old, the old IT guy at Lattice sent me that was like all the, all the companies that just make you upgrade for the SSO. It's a funny thing. And I'm, I'm glad that that trend is, is as, as someone who yeah. sold to that person at Lattice and previous, I, I had seen that same website from him yeah. a few times. So it's great. Yeah. He's the best. Hello, Frank. Shout out, Frank. One thing I struggle with is like this, the fake champion, right? It's like, there's this end user who says, you know, promises you the world and they're like, we'll help you get into the organization, but they don't really have a lot of sway. And I'm curious, like, how do you deal with that dynamic? How do you approach with multi-threading and making sure you're talking to like the right person at the, at the company at the customer side of things? Yeah, this is a great one. This is an age-old problem. And there are different sales methodologies that and ways to characterize this. One that stuck with me is this idea of champions versus coaches. Both are valuable, um, but one is going to get you farther across the deal. And identifying who's who early is so important. So one of the concepts that we really preach on our team is kind of testing your champions early. It's one thing to ask the question, do you have buying authority? And a more artful version than that, but to actually test and see through functional validation, through technical validation, through talking through, hey, what past vendors have been successful here? What are behaviors they saw? Like, how did you shepherd them through? You start to like get a sense of, is this somebody who can actually sort of like drive me forward or do I have to figure out another area uh, of the company to multi-thread into? Man, I cannot 
emphasize the importance of testing your champions early and trying to validate uh, because the risk you run, particularly in a tough macroeconomic environment like 2023, is you spend a couple months on a deal that you think is going to get you to your number. And it's just a lot of wasted calories on something that uh, pushes or ultimately doesn't close last because the person that you're dependent on, group of people you're dependent on, can't ultimately get you to it. The one other thing that has been emphasized in recent months is you really want to get a sense of of your prospect's business model and how they make money, profit margins. And this is easier to do when you're selling to publicly traded companies where you can go into uh, different reports that are filed. But if you can get a sense of, is this a business model that appears to be growing, that appears to be viable, you can have a higher level of confidence in those deals closing um, because dollars maybe aren't as hard won. In businesses that are suffering outsize right now, you run the risk of just a new CFO or a new uh, initiative coming in. Even if you have the right buyer, spending freezes just happen overnight. And so like trying to go through your pipeline and fine tune comb and say like, this is a business that's growing. This is a business where it's not easy money versus hard money, but you're not going to be under the same level of rigor if you're in a business that's thriving uh, versus a business that's going through a, a tougher patch. And you touched on the macro and how things are a little bit different now in, in 2023. I guess are there, and you have the benefit of perspective, right? You've been, you've been doing this for a while and, and we're here in the good times and in the zero interest rate environment, right? And I'm curious, like, are there other trends you're seeing and what makes, you know, selling now different than, you know, like the early days of intercom or even before that? Yeah, I remember when I first joined Box, it was coming off of a really tough macro uh, with the uh, uh, 2008, 2009 financial slowdown and and just trying to get back. And so one of the things that at the time felt like a, a, a real challenge, but when I look back on it, I'm very thankful for, was uh, business cases were hard won. Deals were hard won. And ROI was a part of every conversation, hard stop. I think that in a tough macro the idea of ROI, it's always important, but it is so important to establish early to understand how does your service make or save someone money? And then being able to flesh that out early, come to mutual agreement, and then every single conversation, touch point, and technical validation that you do has to map back to that why and sort of the how do we make or save you money? I talked to a CRO who had uh, sold uh, his company service to a fang type company a, a year ago. And it was 100K deal, required two signatures, and it was a real, relatively uh, fast deal cycle. This year, to renew it at the exact same level after a relatively successful first year, required 17 signatures. Just little things like that. How many people are involved in the buying process and what's the level of scrutiny over each dollar? It's a, a small anecdote to me, but it's just a reminder of like, Every single thing you can do to run a tighter sales process and to harken back to a strong ROI case is the best way to safeguard yourself away from uh, losing deals, missing targets, et cetera. How do you think about building that ROI case? Because like when I've tried to do this in the past, it feels like I'm always, I don't know, I'm building some ROI calculator and like an Excel Google sheet and making up these metrics and stuff. And what's always hard about it is like, I don't know their business that well. I don't have, you know, how much their sales reps cost. And so I don't know. What's this balance between like, yeah, how do you, how do you do that? Like, do you just make up numbers? Do you ask them for inputs? Like, what do you think is like the best way to, to sort of build that ROI case? It's easier to do in some spaces and in some industries uh, than others. Um, and I think that the key, particularly when you're in 
a newish space or you're taking a new approach where ROI isn't just generally accepted is that really collaborative feedback and making sure that you get mutual agreement, mutual buy-in at every step. If you can get to the space of saying, hey, I'm going to save you 100 developer hours per month. Uh, From what I see, you have 20 developers on uh, LinkedIn. I'm ballparking what their annual salaries are. Based on what you told me before, it sounds like you're spending X number of hours working on these projects. Is this accurate? And at some point, if you're taking those thoughtful approaches and, and you're getting really collaborative, people will share, like, this is a real problem I'm feeling, things like that. And then they can also say, I don't think 100 is real. Uh, maybe you can only save me 50, you know, like, but the key is if you're going through that ROI calculator, if you're just depending on the ROI calculator that somebody puts on a marketing website with a bunch of inputs, I think that is usually met with a level of skepticism where um, if you can go through that mutual validation process, you're a little bit more likely to come out with something that uh, that is is defensible. Very interesting. I'd love to switch gears and talk a little bit about you personally and like your transition into a revenue leader. You know, over your career, you went, we talked about this before, but like you went from an IC to a manager and then at Rewatch and now at Stitch, like you're, you're a VP, you're a VP uh, of revenue. And so I'm curious, like, what is that transition like? And like, what do you think is the biggest difference between being like, you know, a revenue leader sort of at the VP level versus, you know, being, being a manager on a sales team? I think that at each stop, and just I've been really lucky to work at, at, at great companies who've been funded by great VCs. And I, I get to work with really smart people at each stop. The key is really trying to figure out what is your special sauce that you bring to the table? What is your superpower? And how does that tie into something that is important to the company right now? And I think with each, each kind of a uh, uh, place that I've, I've worked, I've developed a different skill set. you know, at, at box for me, it was really learning kind of the enterprise sales, but at uh, Intercom is really trying to figure out like, hey, for an early product-led growth company, how do you build a go-to-market team? How do you build a sales team that is truly complementary and not cannibalizing self-serve, you know, adding value, helping move us up market and driving net dollar retention. And at these different places, you you, you learn kind of like how to uh, tap into to your background and your skill set and figure out how to have the most impact. Um, I think that the thing that I love most, and, and I've discovered this over the past couple of years, is when you're building zero to one or like one to five teams, everything you do has outsized impact. And everything you do from like hiring a person, setting a culture, setting a performance bar, reinforcing that performance bar, it sets the table for the next three, six, 18 months. I think that the, it's a combination of you know, the scrappiness and just kind of figuring out how to get things done, doing things that don't scale, but also just trying to look around the corner and think, if I am setting this performance bar now and we're anchored at this level, is this going to be something that helps us, you know, 18 months from now? Is this the right kind of uh, standard to set today? Um, That's something I'm always thinking about and always trying to figure out how can we make sure that we're setting ourselves up for a better next uh, 12, 24 months. I feel like the first 90 days of leading a revenue team is just so important, especially when you come in from the outside, right? There's just a lot of trust you need to build in both directions, right? With with the sales reps on your team and with the leadership team. And so, yeah, how do you think about building trust? And is it getting quick wins? Like, yeah, how do you think about sort of coming in and just making an impact right away? It's definitely evolved over time. I think that a failure mode that you see sometimes, and I've fallen into in the past is, you want to come in and just uh, hit the ball out of the park right away. 
And sometimes you can be like more prescriptive than really trying to understand kind of what are the problems that we're facing today? How do the different teams interact? If we take like a, a user systems thinking approach to this, what are some of the functions and dysfunctions that, that we really want to lean into over the next quarter or quarters? I also think that, you know, depending on the stage of company you join, uh, you don't want to get too strategic and, and far away from deals and deal level execution. The worst thing that you can do, particularly in like a, a year like this, is to drop the ball in execution. Every CRO I know, every VP of sales I know, has been more deal level focused this year than they have in the past 10 I think that's because there's a real opportunity cost. Pipeline is hard one today. And so like, it's sort of like trying to balance the organization's priorities and, and your kind of a strengths and skill sets at the time, uh, but also just knowing kind of what's going to be most important and trying to be that chameleon. So for me right now, I'm toggling a little bit further back into deals, making sure that of the pipeline that we have, that we're executing as best as we can, constantly learning what plays work, what don't. And I think that's, that's more of a, a broadly shared trend. So yeah, let's talk about that. Like your current role at Stitch, you know, Stitches and correct me if I'm wrong, but API for authentication and identities, and you sell primarily to developers. And that's a little bit different than what you've done in the past. And so I'm curious, like, yeah, how do you approach selling to developers? I can't imagine they enjoy uh, talking to salespeople too much. I don't know. I think I'm pretty fun to talk to. Yeah, you are. Yeah. But you are absolutely right. And I, I think like for Stitch, which is an API first and developer first uh, platform for building authentication that supports not only password based, but a lot of passwordless authentication flows. What we're doing is we're taking kind of this, this problem that people have solved in a very straightforward way with passwords being kind of the backbone for authentication for the past 50 years and really turning it on its head in some ways and figuring out how do we become the bridge to passwordless? How do you reduce friction on the internet for your users? And how do we make sure that people are seeing the value of your product and getting to like those aha milestone moments as fast as possible? And what we found is over the past year, we have a really technical buyer, you know, on, on deals where there's not a VP of engineering or there's not a CTO, it becomes very hard for us to sort of sequester the engineering resources we need to test to validate and to get real feedback on like what migration would look like and how to solution design authentication. And so for me, the challenge is that this is the most technical uh, product I've sold, and it's also a, a really technical buyer. One of the things that uh, I've learned over the past year is, is figuring out an outsized role of solutions engineering, having really technical counterparts, and then figuring out kind of the interplay between more uh, process-focused account executives and sales professionals, and then where to plug in those solutions engineers. And as somebody who's worked in partner selling with uh, solution engineers at many different stops along the way. I have never appreciated that team more than today uh, because I think we kind of got to this point where the AE and the sales professional becomes responsible for the what, you know, why are we doing this? What are we looking to do? And then the solutions engineer becomes the how, and it's just created this really powerful dynamic that's led us to uh, bigger deals, better deals, and to, uh, to more traction as we start to find our, our groove on that front. And how do you, how does that collaboration work? Cause you have the AE, you have the solutions engineer, and then you obviously have the customer who's a developer. And so are you sort of all collaborating in like a sales proof of concept document? Do you have a shared Slack channel? Like, cause there's must be just a lot of like next steps you're sharing or to do's and things. There's just a lot of alignment that needs to happen. And so, yeah, I'm curious kind of what that, what that looks like practically. Totally. Well, I think, uh, most AEs have heard some version of you become the quarterback of your deals, uh, type speech. But in a deal like this, where 
its technical stakeholders, its technical leaders, and then it's really important to meet your individual contributor developers um, on the right level, and then to figure out how to solve problems for both of them over the course of a deal. There's a lot of coordination that happens internally. And so that'll be an AE working not only with their solutions engineer, but potentially uh, interacting with folks on our product team or engineering team to talk through roadmap, talk through uh, how to proof of concept different things, trying to figure out, hey, if we advise in this direction, is that going to create complexity later on? It's a lot of Slack channels. We'll have internal Slack channels for customers. We'll have external Slack channels with customers. It's figuring out like what are the best ways for us to, to drive that internal collaboration so that at each call we're coming in, not only a well-prepared kind of a presentation and well-prepared sort of demo, uh, but also like really thoughtful and bespoke uh, solutions design for customers that are going to help them solve today problems and future-proof them. Uh, when you're selling core infrastructure, the future-proof piece is so important because nobody wants to rip out authentication more than once every five, 10 years. Uh, so proving out that you're going to be the best long-term partner is so key. No, and it makes it puts more emphasis just on those technical proof of concepts. And then, I mean, the good good thing about Stitch is once it's in there, they're probably very unlikely uh, to churn. It's a very sticky, sticky product, which is which is awesome. As long as we do our job, but yeah, uh, but yeah that's the fun part of it. I'd love to end on a, on a maybe a more or a fun note, but like I think before business, you you were a basketball player, right? Like you played for Stanford's basketball team, and yeah, I don't know. I'm curious if there's any lessons you learned from sports that you uh, applied to sales. Like anything about that experience make you make you a better leader. Yeah, I, I feel like I can fall into kind of like the stereotypical former athlete goes into the sales model. But for me, I really don't feel comfortable unless I'm in that team environment and in a team environment where you're pushing yourself really hard, but you're also pushing each other. I remember having uh, very candid conversations with my coaches, with my point guards. Sometimes if my point guards didn't give me the ball on the right block in the exact place I liked, I would have very candid conversations with them. But, but there's something that's like so uh, comforting and functional around a team that is holding each other accountable, uh, a team where you really feel like you win or lose together, and a structure where you put a lot of uh, accountability and emphasis on your own performance. Um, and for me, that was such a natural transition into sales. After basketball, um, I had a chance to play briefly overseas. I had a couple of different jobs. I was a, a speechwriter at an international organization, which was kind of fun. I was an investment banker very briefly in Boston during one of the snowpocalypse, I didn't really find that environment that sort of was a proxy for what team sports was until I got into sales. And for the past 12, 13 years, it's been a really happy place. Yeah. I think that's the funnest part about sales is that team rah-rah, you know, sort of environment. I started my career at Yelp and that was definitely what it what it felt like. And I feel like, you know, with, with the pandemic and remote work, we've maybe lost a little bit of a, about that, but maybe, maybe the pendulum's swinging back. So we'll see, we'll see what happens, but thank you so much, Pete. This was a, a, a wonderful conversation. If people want to follow up with you, ask questions or, or promote yourself, where, where's the best place? LinkedIn, Twitter? LinkedIn is a great place. If you want to drop me a note, I'm just Pete at stitch.com. Thanks so much for the conversation. This is really fun. Thanks so much, Pete. That's a wrap on another episode of Grow and Tell. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to us on YouTube or your favorite podcast platform, or find every episode at growandtellshow.com. I'm your host, Alex Krakow. Thank you for listening.